Matthew chapter chapter 28, beginning in verse 1, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, his clothing as white as snow, and the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly. And tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. And indeed, he's going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them saying, rejoice. So they came and held him by the feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee and there they will see me. In this final chapter of Matthew, we're going to see two post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. Jesus is going to appear to the women in verses 1 through 15, to the 11 disciples in verses 16 through 20. The chapter begins with the women's arrival at the tomb in verse 1, and then the angel beside the tomb in verses 2 through 8, the angel's announcement and invitation in verses 5 through 8, and then these ladies will meet Jesus, verse 9, Hear Jesus, verse 9. Worship Jesus, verse 9. Obey Jesus in verse 10. And it's that that sets the tone for the chapter. And I'm hoping it's going to set the tone for you. Because that's my prayer for you. My prayer for those of you who have never met Jesus, that you will meet him. And those of you who desperately need to hear from Jesus that you'll hear from him and that you'll worship him and that you'll obey him. And so in verse one, look what it says. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. All the gospels agree that Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday, the first day of the week. The two Marys made their way to see the tomb just before sunrise. They were on their way to finish the business of anointing the body. In the Jewish culture, they did not really practice embalming the dead. And so the spices that they had originally wrapped the body in, and then the spices that the women are bringing were meant to mask the smell of decomposition. It was to arrest 
the odor of decay. And this becomes an important part because remember, they're bringing spices to anoint a dead body. The expectation isn't to find someone who's alive, but to anoint someone, to respect someone, and care for someone who's dead. Now, Jesus is in a borrowed tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. The other Mary isn't the mother of Jesus. It may have been the mother of James. That's what it says in Mark chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, or perhaps the wife of Cleopas in John 19.25. In a parallel passage, Mark's gospel reads, quote, Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, or Miriam, Mary, the mother of James, Salome, bought spices that they might come and anoint him. In Mark's gospel, it says that it would appear that as soon as the Sabbath was over, the sun has gone down on Saturday night. Three stars appear in the night. When three stars appear in the night, the Jewish Sabbath is over. They can conduct business. They go into the marketplace. They purchase the spices that they are going to later use to bring to the tomb very early in the morning, it says in Mark 16, on the first day of the week, that Sunday, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. So the people who loved Jesus as they're preparing to come to the tomb, the people who loved him, they're filled with sorrow. They're overwhelmed by pain. They are crushed by disappointment. Grief is piled high and deep. Sorrow is stacked on top of sorrow. In their world, it looks like death has had the final word. The plans for a messianic kingdom appear crushed. You see, you have to really understand when I say they're expecting a dead body. They're expecting a dead friend. For them, it would seem like whatever hopes and dreams are now crushed. And I am sure that they've cried and cried and cried until it feels like they can't squeeze even one more tear out of their eyelids. It's sorrow and grief. C.S. Lewis described grief this way. He said, quote, It feels like being mildly drunk or concussed. There's a sort of invisible blanket between the world and me. I find it hard to take in what anyone says. When you are experiencing profound loss, profound grief, and profound sorrow, it's like trying to hear people underwater. People who experience loss sometimes act strange and distant. Henry W. Longfellow wrote, quote, Believe me, every heart has its secret sorrows which the world knows not, and often we call a man cold when he's only sad, unquote. 
We don't always know what's going on inside of the heart of another person. People come in. You greet them. You ask them how it's going. They don't want to disclose everything that's going on in their life. They are hurt and they are sometimes in pain and sometimes they're afraid. They don't necessarily tell you that they've just lost a child. They don't necessarily tell you that their marriage is getting ready to completely fly apart. They're they're not ready to tell you all of the pain and the sorrow that they're experiencing and they come to church because they want to meet Jesus and they want to hear from Jesus and they want to worship Jesus and they want to obey Jesus, but they don't know exactly how to do that. And so we have to help them. We have to help them. And remind them. And you see, this is one of the reasons why the resurrection is going to be so, so very, very important. Did the women know about the Roman seal? Or the Roman soldiers? Certainly they were aware of the stone because elsewhere Mary is contemplating once I get there, how in the world am I going to remove this stone? And the angel we see beside the tomb in verse 2, look what it says, and behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. In verse 2 and it says, and behold, there was a great earthquake, there was a shaking At the death of Jesus, there is now a shaking at the resurrection of Jesus. And I want you to get the picture. An angel descends from heaven, breaks the seal, picks up the stone just as easily as my three-year-old granddaughter can pick up a piece of marshmallow and put it in her hot chocolate. Can you imagine The seal is broken. The stone is rolled away. The angel plops himself on top of the stone and says, hello. And I want to remind you of something. The angel isn't removing the stone in order to let Jesus out. The angel's going to remove the stone in order to let everyone outside the tomb into the tomb. And you see, this rock will become a type and a picture, a symbol, if you will, of unbelief. It's the human heart and the thing that seals away what's inside. God is going to send a supernatural being from heaven. God is going to roll away the stone through the supernatural agency of an angel. And the reason why I find this so very, very interesting is because so many people, even when they address this issue, even Christians for years and years and years, they sit in their chair and their mind is working and they're asking the question, did this really happen? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Did it really happen? Am I getting sucked into a story that has been fabricated in order to make me feel better about my life? But guess what? The Lord supernaturally is going to roll away the stone of unbelief. 
What's keeping you from trusting him and believing in him? What is the rock that you've rolled in front of your heart and you won't allow entry until that stone is removed? Is it because you're overwhelmed with sorrow or grief or unbelief and it sits like a stone right in front of the decision that you know you need to make? What stone seals your soul and keeps you from saving faith? What is it that's keeping you from fully and finally believing the truth about what the Bible says? And look at the angel's radiance in verses 3 and 4. It says, his countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. Matthew gives a description of the angel's face. His face is like lightning. Now again, all of you have seen lightning. You see it split the heavens and it comes down. Imagine a supernatural being whose face looks like it's on fire, full of light. Matthew might be saying, this is the beginning of the end. When you see a supernatural being come from heaven, this looks like it's in the end. And again, I've told you repeatedly that in the Old Testament, as well as the New Testament, when people see angels, it's usually not a good thing. It's usually the last thing they see. In their culture and society, when you see an angel, it pretty much means that you're going to be dead in just a few moments. And so you can imagine this is apocalyptic language. The end of the world begins with the resurrection of Jesus from the grave. And on this occasion, like with a messenger like this, I want you to think about this for just a moment. Because part of what Matthew is saying, there is a message and there is a messenger. And the description of the messenger is supposed to invite you to listen carefully to what he has to say, and to believe what he's saying. And I want you to think about the irony for a moment. There is an angel on top of a rock. Uh, The guy who used to be in the tomb is supposed to be dead, but he's alive. The soldiers on the outside of the tomb are alive, but they're pretending like they're dead. Fear. Terror gripped their heart. These are battle-scarred, war-hardened Roman soldiers. Every Roman soldier, by the way, was familiar with death. And even though you may or may not know it, a Roman soldier's courage was legendary. In our culture and society, when we say... Hey, you see that guy? I, this, this, this last week, Jimmy Waddles and I went to a security and safety meeting, and one of the featured speakers there was a guy named um, Jimmy. What's Jimmy's last name? Graham. Jimmy Graham. He gets introduced. He is a SEAL, a Navy SEAL, formerly stationed in Benghazi. 
Now, when you hear the term SEAL, Navy SEAL, stationed in Benghazi, you, you immediately think, he, can, he could kill you. So be friends, make friends with him. <laughs> Every Roman soldier was trained to be a killer, trained in the art of death. But even they can't control and they can't fight against a supernatural being who's come from heaven. Nietzsche was fond of saying God is dead and yet God knows that Nietzsche is dead. Not everyone who seems alive is and not everyone who thinks they're alive is. Appearances can be deceiving. And I want to draw your attention to something. The same word that's used for earthquake in verse 2. Remember what we just read? And behold, there was a great seismos. Is now translated shook in verse 4. In verse 2, it's used as a noun. Seismos. Now it's used as a verb. And the guards shook. A size the sani. In verse two, the earth is shaking. In verse four, men are quaking. One is a description of the land losing control. In verse four, it's a loss of human control. You know, there's some circumstances where your body will involuntarily do what it doesn't necessarily want to do. And these guards are now frozen, stiff. The Lord Jesus' resurrection and subsequent supernatural appearance by an angel causes these men to play dead and see part of the point of this passage is that's what the resurrection does. That's what supernatural intervention does. It will shake your conviction. Physical and philosophical foundations will begin to shake. The biblical revelations are terrifying to the unbeliever and sometimes even to believers. When you begin to ask and answer the question, what does this mean? What does this mean? What does it mean if God has intervened in human history? If Jesus has really come back to life, what, in the, what does this mean? And you get the angel's reassurance in verses 5 and 6. Look what it says. But the angel answered and said to the, to the women, do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. The text literally re reads... In, in the original language, it's emphatic. Don't you be afraid. The emphasis is on the word you. That's how it actually begins in the text. You. Don't be afraid. I suspect that the words of the angels allowed the women to do what the soldiers could not do. Remain conscious. Now think about it. Battle-hardened, seasoned soldiers literally scared out of their wits. Do they lose consciousness? 
Do they just simply pretend to be dead? I don't know. But I want to offer something to you. And that is, I suspect that the words of the angel were meant not just to impart information, but also to impart strength because otherwise the women would have fainted dead away as well. I mean, let's be honest. Women are very strong and they have a very large threshold for pain. But when my wife sees a snake crawling into the garage, she starts to panic. I can't take her to the movie theater because she'll scream. She's, I go, it's just a movie. It's just a movie. Just, just, it's just a movie. It's not really happening. This is not real. But you can imagine when it is real. The commands of God aren't simply meant to fill a void of information. The commands of God are meant to give us strength. And again, the angel doesn't simply tell the women what to do, but the angel's going to also give them strength to do of what to do. And, but this becomes an important part for your life. You see, the moment, the moment the Lord asks you to do something, the moment that there is a command or a promise, the moment when the Lord says, don't be afraid. He's going to give you the strength and the courage to not be afraid. The task of preaching the gospel normally fell to the sons and daughters of Adam. But here we see an angel preaching the good news. And the message begins with joy and not fear. It begins with joy. Fear paralyzes. Hope liberates. Fear monopolizes our attention. And if you've ever been afraid, you understand exactly what I'm talking about. It starts to take over. And it consumes you. Fear and pain can sometimes be the loudest voices Fear paralyzes our responses. And therefore, the first message of the resurrection is a message of the exorcism of fear. The message of the risen Savior includes the message that we don't have to be afraid anymore. And for some of you, you need to be able to ask and answer that question. How, how do you deal with fear? How, what are you going to do with this fear? And, and how is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead going to become an antidote to fear? In order to really think about this and consider it, remember, what is it that you're afraid of? Death? Divorce, disaster, demons. You see, fear is the thing that grips you as you anticipate the future of what may or may not happen. And when you're confronted with fear, we're invited to consider 
the empty tomb. That Jesus is risen from the dead. That a real Jesus has really come back to life. We are invited not just to contemplate or consider, but to remember the reality of the resurrection. The angel is well aware of Mary's mission. The angel says, I know why you're here. You're here to anoint a dead body. The angel knows what Mary is doing and what Mary has come there for. It's interesting to me, it says, but the angel said, do not be afraid for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. Not just any Jesus. I know what you're doing. You're looking for Jesus. You're looking for the Jesus who just recently came here. The one who was put to death. The one who was crucified. You're looking for a crucified person. What is it that you're looking for? What is it that you're seeking? Remember, she's seeking someone who's dead. And the prophet invited the people of Israel hundreds of years earlier. In Isaiah chapter 55, verse 6, it says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he'll have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. What is it that you're looking for? When the prophet Isaiah says, seek the Lord while he may be found, the implication is there is a God and you can find him. There is a, a God and you can know him. There is a God that you can can call upon and that he is near. And you know who he is the nearest to? Those who are crushed and brokenhearted. Isaiah says, let him return to the Lord. Let him forsake his way. Let him return to the Lord. And there's a promise that's given. He will have mercy on him. And our God will abundantly pardon. And for some of you, you're wondering, can I go back to the Lord? Can I return to the Lord? Will he, will he embrace me? Will he forgive me? Will he take me back? The Bible says, seek the Lord. Seek him first in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Seek him early in Psalm 68, 1. Seek him continually in 1 Chronicles 16, 11. Was it, what is it that you're supposed to seek? When you're seeking him, what is it that you're, you're supposed to find? What is the expectation? You can find peace, Psalm 34, 14. You can find forgiveness and mercy, Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. You can find instruction, Psalm 119, 45. You can find freedom. We seek what is good, it says in Amos 5, 14. We seek righteousness and meekness, Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 3. We seek not the things below, but we seek the things above in Colossians 3, 1. We seek with a prepared heart, 2 Chronicles 19, 3. We seek with a prayerful spirit, Daniel chapter 9, verse 3. We seek the Lord. And look what the angel says in verse 6. 
He's not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. The angel's message wasn't simply the answer to fear, if that was the only thing that he said. Don't be afraid anymore. You don't have to be in sorrow or despair or doubt anymore. Jesus is alive. The resurrection of Jesus, by the way, as you know, is the central tenet of the Christian faith. But the resurrection of Jesus, like I repeatedly said, isn't just simply a promise that's been kept. Because Jesus is alive, the angel's reassurance is going to lead to an invitation. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. And this is powerful testimony concerning the physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Cults would have you believe that Jesus rose, well, as a spirit being. That he, he rose in memory or... In, in wishful thinking, liberals would have you believe that he remains alive through his teaching or through his disciples or through fond memories. The angel's message, he is not here. He is risen just as he said. The angel doesn't ask you to believe simply based on the empty tomb, or even on his message, he reminds them of the historical fact of Jesus' declaration that he himself said that he would come back to life. The resurrection is a fulfillment of his words. Jesus repeatedly said that he would rise from the dead. Not once, not twice, not even three times, but five times recorded throughout his ministry. And the Bible goes to extraordinary lengths to make sure that the reader understands that he rises physically, bodily from the dead. The three words, he is risen, translates one Greek word, which speaks of a physical coming back to life. If Jesus is raised spiritually or metaphysically or simply in memory, then his resurrection belongs to the realm of metaphysics, not historical fact. The angel could have said, he is not here. Dude, he's everywhere. He's in the birds and the bees and the flowers and the trees and the moon up above and a thing called, you guys know the song, yeah. By the way, I like the song. I'm not making fun of the song. I'm making fun of the notion that this is something other than what the Bible says. This isn't simply a resurrection of influence. It isn't a resurrection of spirit or wonderful teaching. It is a literal, bodily, real, physical resurrection. And many historical figures live on in their words and their writings and their students and their inventions. Woody Allen said, I want to live forever. Not through my film and not through my works. Me, alive, forever. But it's not going to happen. 
Because it's appointed once for a man to die, and then the judgment. The Bible says that the soul that sins, it shall surely die. Some skeptical scholars suggest that Paul, the apostle, never used the phrase empty tomb, virgin birth, because Paul didn't embrace those concepts, but nothing could be further from the truth. Paul had met the risen Lord, and we don't have to talk about someone's empty tomb when we have their living presence. The most basic and fundamental fact embraced by the followers of Jesus is that he rose from the dead. The invitation isn't simply an invitation to see an empty tomb. The moment that the angel says, come, look, and see that the tomb is empty, it's an invitation to examine the evidence. Do you understand that? This isn't like a This isn't like just some ride at Disneyland. It's an invitation to think carefully and prayerfully. The tomb was empty and the tomb remains empty. And the problem that every single person, believer or unbeliever alike, has to come up with an explanation of whatever happened to the body. And remember, we as believers believe that Jesus really rose from the dead. And part of the point of the passage that's going to take place later is that the critics and the skeptics and the enemies of the gospel are going to immediately try and fabricate an alternative explanation. Here's the problem with our enemies. The resurrection is rooted in history. In fact, it isn't wishful thinking. And here's part of the point. The angel's invitation to the women extends to you. What's interesting about the passage is that this isn't Easter unsolved mysteries. Well, what really happened here? The angel doesn't say, stay away from the tomb. Just believe by faith. Take my word for it. Don't ask questions. Do you understand what's happening in the text? You're invited to think. To really, carefully, biblically, thoughtfully, rationally think. We are asked to believe in evolution, absent evidence. We're asked to believe that aliens built the pyramids, absent evidence. We're asked to believe that Elvis is still alive, absent evidence. We're asked to believe that the universe is all there is and all there will ever be, absent evidence. If Jesus is alive from the dead, then automatically these things must be true. Number one, we have evidence for the reality of God. For the passive points to the the one thing, the person who did the raising. If Jesus is really risen from the dead, then there is a God who raised him from the dead. Number two, there's a reply to the question of death. If God really did raise Jesus from the dead, there's a good chance that he's going to raise you from the dead. Why? Because he said, I'm the resurrection and the life. And he that believeth in me, even if he were dead, yet shall he live. 
I want you to imagine a world where Jesus says what's true about himself and then refuses to bring to pass what's true about you. How could Jesus have been right about so many things and wrong about this one thing? I'm going to suggest to you that's not even possible. I'm going to suggest to you that our consciousness survives death and that everyone, believer and unbeliever alike, is going to be raised in a future judgment, some for reward and some to receive judgment. Number three, there's purpose and meaning in life. If Jesus is raised from the dead, he's the Lord of life. And the moment that Jesus rises from the dead, then we can with complete confidence and assurance know that our life has meaning, our life has direction and purpose. So much depends on that single statement. He's not here. He is risen. Can I prove to you that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, it all depends on what you're willing to accept as evidence. His claims, an empty tomb, eyewitness testimony, a supernatural visit from an angel, no body, a written record. But there will be people who will go, no, no, no. As a matter of fact, as we make our way to the end of this chapter, Jesus is literally going to not only rise from the dead, but he's going to appear on a mountain with literally hundreds of people. And when you come to the end of the chapter, you are going to see in verse 17, when they saw him, they worshiped him. But then you see, you, you see in verse 17, but some doubted. Even then there were people who doubt. They're looking right at the risen Savior and they doubt. Why? Because they're thinking, I'll bet you he has a twin brother who exactly looks like him. This is like, this is like Chris Angel mind freak. This is like a television show where you have identical twins and one dies and then the identical twin pretends to be that person. There are lots of people who are going to come up with lots of reasons for not believing. But then we see the angel's request. Look what it says in verse 7. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. And indeed he's going before you into the Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I've told you. The angel's message begins with reassurance. Don't be afraid. Then an explanation. He's not here. He's risen. An invitation. Come and see the place where the Lord lay. And now guidance and direction. Go quickly. Tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. This message, according to the angel, is an urgent message. The women are entrusted with this message of joy, the good news that Jesus is alive. The message of the resurrection isn't simply marvelous, overwhelming, wonderful. It's all of those things, but it's also urgent. Go quickly. And some scholars have pointed out, look, if you wanted to fabricate a hoax, if you wanted to create a narrative, if you wanted to, to foist a hoax upon people, would you make women the first witnesses to the resurrection? And the answer is no, because a woman's testimony wasn't always admissible in court. 
Some scholars have wrongly said it was never admissible, but that isn't historically true. A woman's testimony could be admitted into court only if there was corroborating evidence by someone else. So it just depends. What are you looking for for evidence? It's interesting to me. Unsupported testimony, inadmissible. The reason I think that the record points to the women as being the first witnesses of the risen Lord, there's only really one logical explanation. It's because it's true. It's because the narrative is true. It's what the New Testament says about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And guess what? If you want to make your faith more real, go tell someone. When I accepted the Lord, I told my family. I told my friends. I told everyone. I told the people who loved me and I told the people who hated me. So why are these women entrusted with the message? Because they were there. Because they were there. I was thinking this last Friday at the anniversary of Columbine, the opportunities that it's afforded to me to talk about what happened that day. Talk about how horrible it was. Talk about how it hurt People, not just that day and the day after and the week after and the month after and a year after and a decade after. To talk about the reality that there is a broken world that needs a solution to the brokenness. The only thing that even gave me the right to have the conversation is because I was there. The only reason why I could talk about the Aurora movie theater shooting is because I was there. The Roseburg shooting because I was there. The Platte Canyon shooting because I was there. Ground zero because I was there. And so when you are there, it affords you the opportunity to talk about it. And so God might place you in a situation where you don't want to be under any circumstance. But because you were there, you get to speak with credibility about the presence of hope and the presence of grace and the presence of mercy. And we'll see that the Savior is risen from the tomb. And we're going to come back and visit these verses a little bit more because I'm not going to be able to say everything that I want to say. In verse 8, it says, So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. I want you to understand, the women obey the angel's orders. The angel has said to them, Go do it. That's exactly what they do. And in verse 9, it says, and as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them saying, rejoice. So they came and held him by the feet and worshiped him. Just remember, the women hear Jesus. Behold, Jesus met them saying, rejoice. The word is very interesting. It's karete. It means all hail. It means hail in the sense of shout 
with joy. It means to make a loud noise concerning something that's filled with gladness. The women worship Jesus. And so they hear him. They touch him. They worship him. There is wonder, amazement, and joy. And in verse 10, it says, Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. The point? Don't be afraid. Why does he say that? I'm going to suggest to you he says it because there's still a sense of doubt. How could something this great actually be true? But Jesus is basically saying, the time for fear is past. The time for fear is now over with. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, Paul writes, For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And you have to remember the circumstances and the context when he's writing that. He's in a Roman prison, facing a Roman court, and almost a certain Roman execution. But he says, For God hasn't given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Catherine Marshall writes, quote, in almost every example of God breaking into life on earth, the opening words are, fear not, have no fear, I am with thee. Our Father knows that we need constant reassurance, unquote. And that's exactly right. Do your children need constant reassurance? Does your husband or wife need constant reassurance? Does your pastor need constant reassurance? There's a reason why there's this reassurance. The disciples have let Jesus down. They didn't believe him. They forsook him. They ran. They hid. But Jesus didn't say, go and tell my brethren, I'm really sore. I'm deeply disappointed. I told him, that I would be arrested, killed, and come back to life. Go tell them, I told you so. <laughs> but that isn't what he says. He says, don't be afraid. Jesus is kind. And the Lord repeats the angel's message. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee. There they're going to see me. He repeats the message because he wants to impress upon them the reality of what's about to happen. Before we close the chapter again, there's going to be an attempt to discredit the message of the resurrection. The guards are going to report the resurrection. The authorities are going to be baffled, but they're going to counsel and conspire to come up with a plausible explanation other than what the text says. And the soldiers are going to be offered a bribe to conspire, to tell a lie. But the truth is going to come out. It always does. It always does. The truth will prevail. It always does. The plots to discredit the Bible's res uh, resurrection, they continue and become more elaborate and more absurd. 
The same authorities had used treachery to arrest him, an illegal court to try him, false charges to accuse him, and now bribery to make sure that everybody keeps their mouth shut. But a story with this much love, a story with this much joy, a story with this much hope isn't just going to disappear because the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. I have to stop. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that as we consider this mighty work, Lord, redemption instead of disaster, power to bring our dead life back online, a mighty working power that destroys sin, the possibility of a new life, a preparation for eternity. Lord, the resurrection changes everything. And so again, Lord, I pray that you would stir us up, that you would stir our hearts with hope, that Lord, like these ladies, that we will meet Jesus because he's alive. That, Lord, when we come to church and the pastor says, you know, Jesus is risen from the dead, that you get to say, what does that mean to me? It means that I can know him, I can love him, I can experience the forgiveness of sin, and I can, I can experience hope that we can hear from Jesus. Because he's alive, he still speaks. That we can worship Jesus because he's worthy of our worship and that we can obey Jesus. Believe me. When Jesus says, believe me, it's true. I'm back. Lord, we don't know everything about everything. We don't know every single person's circumstance, Lord, but we know this. We know that you want to change us powerfully. That, that Lord, our life can't just simply be ordinary anymore that it has to be extraordinary because Jesus is alive that our speech changes our hopes change our expectations are different and so Lord teach us instruct us guide us prepare us and, and then empower us to do exactly what you want in Jesus' name.